Hey, how you doing, David? Not too bad, given the, the situation. Yeah, surviving. For those of you who don't know us, my name is Jeremiah Jenny, and this is David Moser. David, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I am a, a longtime resident of Beijing, probably 30 years, uh, teaching at various universities and doing music. I don't really have any resume online, but uh, I think probably people can Google me and get a sense of what I do here. And uh, right now, I'm not in Beijing. I'm in New York City. So that means I guess we don't have to wear face masks because we're like 11,000 kilometers away from each other. Although I, I wager right now, David, being right. in New York may be a scarier place than being in Beijing right now. Yeah, I have to say I sort of I went from the fire pan in, into the fire. Uh, maybe. I, I hope not. But the fire hadn't started when I came here. It's, uh, so we'll see. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremiah Jenny. Like David, I'm a longtime resident of Beijing. I moved here in 2002. And also like David, I've been a teacher for much of that time. I taught late imperial and modern Chinese history for 15 years. And I've also written a lot about Chinese history and Chinese culture. And we're going to be doing a podcast uh, taking a look right now at the intersection between language and history and culture here in, in Beijing and in China. And one of the things we wanted to talk about first since we are separated by uh, travel restrictions and 11,000 miles. Kilometers, not miles. <laughs> Kilometers. All right, I guess that's true. I have never been able to figure this out. Uh, I, I grew up in the 1980s when, when Ronald Reagan basically decided, metric system, that seems hard, and then they stopped teaching it in school. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, so we're 11,000 kilometers away, and one of the reasons is because, of course, uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19, which is spreading around the world, and probably, although if you read state media, they're trying to uh, question or problematize this narrative, but probably started here in China, and certainly China was the first country seriously affected by it. And as the coverage of the COVID-19 outbreak in China began, there was a lot of discussion about how it was being covered, the language that was being used, and, and whether that was in some ways revealing uh, assumptions that were already that the people had about China and about public health in China. So I thought for our first podcast episode, we talk about the language of health in China. And, you know, David, one of the first things um, that I thought of when we're talking about the language of health is the controversy over the Wall Street Journal and the, uh, the headline that was used for an op-ed piece that was written uh, last month. And the op-ed piece title referenced the phrase, sick man of Asia. And, you know, this caused quite a furor online and was the rationale, though, you know, we can question whether this was actually the reason, but was given as the rationale for the expulsion of three extremely talented journalists from the Wall Street Journal Bureau in Beijing by the Chinese government a couple of weeks ago. And it's worth noting, I mean, before we dive into this, that while that was the reason that was given, the fact that all three of them have reported on pretty sensitive topics, including things like the family of the leadership they've reported from Xinjiang, it looks like that uh, they, were, they were already... Um, on a list, if you will. And th this was just gave uh, the powers that be a, a certain cover to be able to expel them. That said, David, you know, the, the choice of this term for a headline in 2020, it should raise eyebrows, shouldn't it? Uh, well, obviously it did. And, and I, I certainly understand uh, China's feelings about it. Having lived there for long, I think you do too. Jeremiah, like me, you probably have told uh, many generations of study abroad students in your classroom that, uh, you know, at the end of the, the Qing during the Opium Wars and beginning of the, of the 20th century, that the f foreign newspapers and foreign observers always referred to China as the sick man of Asia. Uh, what I think what that was the popular 
conception of where the term came from. It was just kind of a term that, that, that arose naturally given China's status among the world na of nations. But it's interesting that uh, this, uh, this phrase, which by the way has different versions, uh, was, is the most common, but there are other different ones. Dongfang being fu and yajou being fu among others. So that it wasn't a set term in Chinese. I mean, there was had some variation. But it seems to be that uh, Liang Qichao may have been the first one to use this phrase. Um, he was uh, situated at the, the, the end of the, the Qing dynasty, watching what was happening, happening in China. And he saw a reference uh, in, in the newspapers to the Ottoman Empire, which was another old and declining empire that they called the sick man of Europe. And so uh, it struck him that this would be uh, an apt phrase to des describe China as well. At the end of the Qing, when they had been, when the China had been uh, forced to accept some unfair treaties after the Opium Wars and grant enormous concessions to the European powers and were reeling from the First Sino-Japanese War, the term seemed appropriate to, Lan to Liang Qichao, who saw China as obviously dysfunctional, passive, and weak. Um, and this disease metaphor also hinted that the problems of China were not caused by foreign aggression necessarily, but also stemmed instead from, instead from some kind of uh, intrinsic Chinese internal malady, you could say. Um, so I think uh, what's interesting about this is that, to, uh, to note anyway, that, that this uh, term that caused so much consternation and so much uh, hurt feelings on the part of the Chinese government was actually a, a term that the Chinese intelligentsia back then at the end of the Qing were using to describe them, their own country and themselves and was not merely a term of approbation from the foreign powers. But as we're going to talk about, I think the term also fed really too neatly into old tropes. And you yep. know, think about how the colonial other was discussed in the 19th and early 20th century. There was always talk about, especially Asia, it's dirt, it's disease, the miasmas, the smells. You know, there was a French naval officer who was here in 1900. He was with the uh, Allied Expeditionary Force during the Boxer War. And he wrote under the, the pen name of Pierre Loti. And he wrote, you know, th this was a description of China that it was in this particular book, but it was pretty common at the time. And he writes about the dirty populace, the, the swarming and crawling about, you know, raising a perfect cloud of microbes and dust. And that kind of criticism of China being, you know, a source of disease, a, a source of smells was, was something that, you know, the, col the colonial powers, the discourse would use to try to, you know, render these other areas of the world as being backwards in need of either their administration or their saving, whatever the case may be. And so we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a bit. But I mean, I think that's part of why the, the term, we I mean, think sick man of Asia, uh, right. It rankles people so much because right away there's these alarm bells that go off like, you know, what we're going back to this again, that we are this dirty, diseased place. And that's why we are so backwards. The other thing about that, too, and I know this, I know there is some talk that this is a, a phrase that was either used or popularized by Liang Qichao and other ch members of the Chinese intelligentsia. Just because someone of a particular group uses a term doesn't necessarily mean I get to do it. It's the reason I can't sing along to rap lyrics in the gym. <laughs> yeah, so I think that uh, it's obvious that the Qing intelligentsia, the, 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 the Chinese people at that time, certainly ha had a kind of a very conflicted national self-image, a sense of nationalism and patriotism because, because there was this uh, 
they were well aware that the, they were seen as the, the, the sick man of Asia. You published a very timely and very enlightening article in uh, Radii last month called Empires of Disease, Why the Cor- uh, Coronavirus is Such an Emotional Issue for China and the World. Um, I think it would be good for the, re- for the listeners if you could just maybe recap that article because it, it, it does uh, kind of very succinctly capture why this was actually such a very hurtful phrase and sort of a sort of punch in the gut for the Chinese uh, government. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that the, the outbreak of coronavirus in China and then its subsequent spread around the world is it unleashed an, an awful lot and, a, and just a horrifying amount of anti-Chinese and right. anti-Asian racism uh, that was going on. And so, I mean, that part of the reaction in China, no doubt, was you know reacting to what they were seeing going on all around the world and these right. horrible images and, and you know videos are putting online of people you know yelling at people of Asian descent and so you, you can really there's a visceral th- reaction to that mm-hmm. I think that was part of this but as you pointed out you know the fact that this the virus it was widely reported to have started in China it's a kick right to the collective nutsacks of the leadership and Xi Jinping's you know, general groinage region in particular. And I think part of that is, as I talked about in the article, is that, we, you know, you had this colonial discourse of backwards, dirty equals backwards, unhygienic equals uncivilized. And then, you know, that, that those ideas, you know, and this is, this goes back to our friend Leon Chi Chao, this, these ideas get internalized by the colonial elites, the, the intellectual elites of China and other parts of the world. And so the idea of modernity gets conflated with this idea of hygiene, with this idea of health. And so, you know, if you think about the policies of, say, the Republic of China and then later the People's Republic of China, and then the leadership has always focused or has often focused on, you know, improving public health, improving hygiene, improving the body, if you will, as a way of, you know, not just, you know, in order to benefit the greater good, but also as a benchmark, if you will, of an achievement of a certain kind of, of, of modernization. And then to have this happen, you know, this year, but not just this year, because we also had swine flu. And then before that, we had the, you know, the, you know, 17 years ago, you and I both remember the, the wonderful spring and summer of SARS. And the fact that this seems to keep happening, it undermines this kind of modern, it undermines this modernization narrative that is tied into these notions of public health. And so as a result, you know, I think the government, the party, the leadership here, this is a particular concern because the contract has always been, we bring modernity. Right, exactly. And it's, you it's, let it's, us this do has been front and center to uh, a lot of the Chinese, uh, you know, civic messages and, and messages to the public, um, uh, especially at, at times like uh, the Olympics or when, when there's big, uh, uh, you know, events that attract foreign reporters or visitors is that there, there has been, and, and rightly so, you have to give the government some credit for this. When uh, I first came to China in the, in the 80s, and th- th- it was one of the striking things from people from a Western country, from a developed Western country to, co- to, to come to China and see um, the, the extent to which uh, China was still backwards and, and, and dirty. Uh, people, you know, and, and public hygiene was, was famously made fun of by foreigners as spitting on the street and defecating, you know, little kids uh, peeing and shitting in the street. And the, the Chinese have done an amazing job through through the last uh, few decades 
and through crucial areas like the 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 the, the hosting of the Olympics in 2008 to rectify that image and and to actually make some some very significant changes in public health and in the the, the consciousness of, of of people. China, Beijing nowadays is. I mean, I would pr- rather spend my time in Beijing, much cleaner than parts of New York City, where I am now. Um, and so I, I think this is a kind of ironic and sad that that this uh, this disease, which, by the way, could have happened anywhere, and similar epidemics have occurred elsewhere, would happen here. And it's ironic and sad and frustrating, maddeningly, to the Chinese government that that this uh, that yet another epidemic would would uh, originate in China. Uh, maybe we should talk a little about this link of hy- hygienic modernity, I think you said. Yeah, there's a really good book uh, by a historian named Ruth Bergaski uh, called hy- titled Hygienic Modernity. And she takes a look at this issue of colonialism and hygiene and health. And she, one of the ways she does this is she takes a look at a particular term, Weisheng, which is, you know, usually was originally a term that was used in Chinese medicine. In Taoism, it had an idea of preserving life or extending life. But one of the, you know, in the late 19th century, you had a lot of new words and new terms coming into East Asian languages from the West. A lot of, the, a few of these terms had direct one-to-one counterparts in, you know, Japanese or Chinese. And so one of the things translators often did was to either create kind of new words and neologisms or to take older words and repurpose them with modern meanings. And this is seems to be the case uh, with Weisheng. And in Japan and later in China, this term, it linked together state efforts along with local efforts and, and new modern concepts related to health, things like hospitals, public health systems, sanitation, bureaucracies, and, and the idea of kind of regulating the population. But by regulating the population also meant the population regulating their bodies and bodily functions. And that's one of the things you see a lot in some of these early, uh, some of these early Chinese modernizers who have internalized this discourse. You know, Sun Yat-sen, who was rather famously put off by people farting or people spitting. Uh, you know, you one of the uh, early proponents of, you know, quote unquote, modern hygiene in China was Yuan Shikai, uh, who in his various governorships implemented public health measures, campaigns, vaccination, registrations, and, and other measures that were in t- intended for the greater good and to help raise the, st- the, the general health standards of the areas that they were administering. But there was also this tied to this notion that improving the quality of health, improving the health of the physical bodies of the people is a step to improving the actual body of the nation. Well, let's trace that a little bit. Uh, at, at the turn of, of the century, when you had um, a lot of China began to modernize uh, the end of the, the Qing dynasty, there was the imp- importation of uh, lots of these, uh, you know, democracy and science, uh, you know, modern medicine began to come into, into uh, China and also modern ideas about hygiene. And these were reflected, I guess you can see them in the newspapers, magazines, uh, popular uh, photographic journals and sorts of things that were available to the people on the street, a sort of a new image of Chinese people that that had associations of vitality and health. I mean, uh, it was a time of liberation. You could actually see bodies more clearly for the first time. You saw arms and legs and, uh, you know, people getting uh, suntans and 
beat going to the beach and, and so on. So it was a, it was a sort of a, a different turn, a different time. Um, you began to see uh, people who uh, you began to see this sort of notion, Western, I guess, or Greek notion of the body as this, you know, as being muscular and the limbs and everything being very strong. Uh, you begin to get this cult of bodybuilding and, and all sorts of things happening during that time. Whereas in traditional China, health was sort of envisioned as a kind of a, a, a private interior kind of lifestyle, a kind of a mental cultivation. Um, and this, and then suddenly uh, at the turn of the century, you began to have this a movement towards a, a more modern and more open attitudes towards the body and, and for health. Um, as a kind of a sidelight, I was interested discover uh, last year that uh, Hu Shi, a famous uh, philosopher, um, student of uh, John Dewey, and uh, a ling linguistic performer, language reformer, um, actually was also as part of this uh, movement. Uh, and one of his his sort of agendas was something that he called the Da Nai Nai Zhu Yi. And Nai Nai, not meaning grandmother, but, but literally meaning bosoms, women's breasts, which he, he thought Chinese women had this... Uh, Custom of sort of binding their breasts under their clothing, so that to de-emphasize their their figure or, their, or or the bosom, and he was he was uh, he was uh, convinced that this was unnatural and bad for you, bad for the body, and distorted the body much in the way that foot binding did. You're right. There was this this idea about the the body and physical physical health. I mean, we think about uh, you know, Mao Zedong in, in one of his very first essays, if not his first essay, was about how China was weak because people lacked physical fitness. You know, he, he wrote, if our bodies are not strong, we will be afraid as soon as we see enemy soldiers. And then how can we attain our goals and make ourselves respected? And, you know, it's a pretty uh, literal approach to the notion of national health. I mean, you know, Chen Duxiu and Hu Shi are looking for Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. And Mao's solution at this moment seems to be, you know, don't skip leg day at the gym. But there was this notion of, of health. And, you know, you talked about how it, it, it had an effect on women's bodies. You know, think about also in terms of women being have seen as, as vessels of the symbolic, to borrow a phrase. You know, this idea that women and, and give, healthy women gave birth to healthy babies. And there were all these kind of healthy baby contests, you know, that were modeled on similar things that were going on around the world. And that you dig down too deep or you scratch the surface, that's some pretty, uh, you know, pretty scary kind of eugenics behind it. You know, this notion that healthy babies improve the racial stock. And it's it's notion that that carried over. I know we'll talk about the modern period in a moment, but you know, that carries over into the 1980s. There's an image that we'll, we'll post, you know, from 1987, I think. And it's uh, you know, during the one child era and it's talking about fewer births and better births. So. You know, this idea of the, the body, of health, you know, of improving the nation through physical health, it really has, it, it, the crucible of that is in this kind of early 20th century, not just, kind of, it becomes part of, you know, national policy too, first under Chiang Kai-shek and the Republic of China, and then of course later on in the PRC. And, and you know, you mentioned thinking about Chiang Kai-shek and the New Life Movement, David, I mean, that, that was all about a kind of, a certain version of modern hygiene as a symbol of a modern nation. Yeah, uh, certainly there was uh, this notion of eugenics floating in the air. I mean, this was the early 20th century, and then the Chinese was not a, 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 uh, immune to these kinds of ideas. And I think 
Chiang Kai-shek's particular uh, civic campaign, originally an anti-communist campaign, but in, in, in Chiang Kai-shek's handling of it, it was a rather, I guess, totalistic, or you, maybe we could say authoritarian attempt to ultimately unite China under this centralized ideology ideology uh, that sort of mixing Confucian and Christi- Christian values of virtues, uh, all centering around uh, a sort of a prudish moral uh, hygiene com- combined with a kind of a, a, a strict, almost militaristic notion about physical hygiene. You know, for example, he he urged uh, citizens to to take baths in cold water since since he there was this supposed idea that the Japanese had a habit of washing their faces and bodies with cold water as a sign of a military discipline. So uh, Chiang Kai-shek definitely had I, you know this idea of morality, spirituality, virtue, and the human body and human health being all part of a sort of a national a composite, comprehensive national health, I guess, a healthy body politic, you, you, you could say. You take a look, you're, you're talking about you know, washing with cold water. You take a look at some of the other aspects of the New Life Movement, and it, it just, it's it's a laundry list of the, you know, anxieties uh, that the intellectual and political elite of China had in the early 20th century. And it's things like, you know, no littering, no spitting, no opium, you know, rejecting, uh, you know, the idea of buttoning up their shirts. You know, there was this idea that laborers working in the hot sun had to have a shirt on. Yeah. And, you know, you think you, you trace all of these things back and, you know, they're they they are all, um, you know, the it's like a top 10 list of the things that foreigners, foreign missionaries, foreign uh, observers of China, you know, talked about in a kind of, you know, look how China hasn't quite made it yet. You know, look how people act, look at what people do. And so I, I think you know, part of the New Life Movement was, of course, you know, trying to create this, this bulwark against communism. Part of it, too, was you know, reflecting uh, the kind of uh, the, the way that the elite at the time was you know, embarrassed by their countrymen mm-hmm. and were trying to find a way to improve, if you will, uh, the behavior and, and therefore improve the nation. And this carries over, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you take a look at, at, after 1949 and the emphasis that in Mao era, you know, strong bodies equals strong Chinese nation. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you want to get into the Mao era, yeah. It was uh, right away, you know, Mao had this sort of emphasis on mass calisthenics. Uh, that, that, you know, suddenly exercise was, was not something that, you know, we would, that people would do it in the privacy of their own homes or with their families. It was something that, you know, it was a collective, uh, you know, mass movement. Yeah, by the way, I have a clip of, uh, I think most people who spent any time in China in the 70s or 80s and even 90s will remember, will, will find this uh, familiar. Let me play it and see if, if we can hear it. Thank you. 
what we just heard was was the Di Wu Tao, Guangbo Ti Cao. So the the number five, uh, the the fifth uh, sort of uh, what's the word? Uh, set of calisthenic open, you know, uh, open calisthenic exercises, and that would have been in the 1970s. So this would have been the during the the, the Mao era, during the Cultural Revolution, and and at the beginning there, he 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 shouts out, "Fa Jian Ti Yu Yun Dong." So at the first, you hear the announcer there shout out, "You know, Fa Jian Ti Yu Yun Dong." So you know. Develop this,、uh, you know, exercise regime. Strengthen the 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 people's, uh, uh, you know, body quality. Uh, teach out some tea. Uh, so you know, body quality. Uh, teach out some tea. Uh, to increase、uh, alertness and you know vigilance and、uh, 保卫祖国 and protect the the motherland. Uh, so obviously this this exercise routine is not just a matter of、uh, exercising the body, but it's actually, as you said. Uh, it's a it's a very nationalistic, patriotic、uh, agenda that that everyone has to be strong because、uh, otherwise we're weak in the face of enemy aggression. It's very clear what 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 it was all about back then. Sure, I mean, and you think about the 1950s, and there was a panic in China over the U.S. involvement in the Korean War and this idea of you know possible, you know, propaganda. Authorities talked about the possibility of germ warfare, bioterrorism, and you had、right. these posters from the era, people being inoculated against disease for the motherland. And of course, the people I'm looking at one of these posters from 1952, and you know the the person who was inoculated, he's he's got some guns on him, I and mean, this guy's got biceps. I, so you know, these, <laughs>、yeah. this is not this is not just somebody who is healthy from a perspective of having、uh, been immunized against the potential.、Uh, American germ warfare, but also he represents the new China. You know, strong, muscular.、Uh, you know, ready to take on the world. If someone wanted to learn more about this, if someone wanted to do a little bit more reading, or to to find out a little bit extra about this issues of language and health in China, is there any、uh, book or film or, or other resource you can suggest that that might be useful for them? I don't have with me because I can't go back to my apartment in Beijing.、Uh, it's about SARS. It's called the China Syndrome: The True Story of, 20, of the 21st Century's First Great Epidemic by Carl Taro Greenfield.、Uh, Carl Taro Greenfield was an editor of Time Asia in Hong Kong when the SARS event hit, hit in, in 2003. And he was just a few miles from the epicenter of the outbreak. And the book is kind of a blow-by-blow account of the, from a reporter's point of view, of the entire uh, uh, scenario, starting from the initial sort of information、uh, blackout and the fear and confusion as people begin to, to die. And, he get, and, and he, as I recall, I haven't read the book in many years, but I read it because I, you and I were both,、uh, I guess, in Beijing during SARS, right? Yeah, it was a fun. So、story. I read this book since it was.、Uh, It was interesting to sort of relive those events、uh, through the eyes of a reporter and 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 in, and in, and reliving what happened in with the benefit of hindsight to see what the mistakes were made and and、uh, what had happened. So I think for people, if you want to sort of catch up on how China handled this last time, this is a great book because it gives a sense of being there and and the events unfolding and the uncertainty that sort of parallels what we're going through right now. And for people who are historians are looking at、uh, this current、uh, coronavirus incident in in a historical context, I think it's a kind of interesting book to at least、uh, skip through, peruse, and get a, and get a sense of.、Uh, the the book I would recommend,、uh, we mentioned it in this podcast too, 
is uh, Ruth Rogaski's Hygienic Modernity, a very good book about the 19th century uh, history and the history of the treaty ports in China. But I think it has a lot of relevance today because she delves deeply into the origins of these tropes of modernity and public health. And you know, for folks who are, can, who are curious about why uh, it is such an emotional issue, we talk about public health in China. I think Ruth Rogowski's book is an excellent place to start. The other thing I would recommend, uh, and I'll put a link up this, to this as well, uh, is the ChinesePosters.net. And this grew out of a collection uh, by uh, a researcher named Stefan Landsberger, uh, collecting and curating propaganda posters from the 20th, oh, yes. uh, 21st century in China. And there's, a, there's one of the sections is on hygiene and public health. And there's some very interesting uh, posters uh, with explanations and the artist's information uh, talking about, you know, you can really kind of track uh, what, what were some of the pressing hygiene, public health issues in China mm. uh, in the PRC period from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It is everything from some of these early germ warfare uh, posters down to, uh, you know, in the 21st century, some of the, the, uh, the, the prevention campaigns around SARS and around the Olympics. And if you're, it, 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 there, if you're working on any kind of um, project that involves uh, visual art or propaganda in China in the PRC period, this is an absolutely invaluable resource. That's a great recommendation. Steven Landsberger and the, those, those propaganda posters are absolutely amazing. And you can, you can learn so much about the different eras and different historical landmarks in Chinese history from just looking at those posters. They're just amazing. I've cribbed them for, for lectures for years and years and years. Yeah, me too. It, they're yeah, a really great too. visual aid. Well, thank you, David. Uh, you know, stay, I'm in China. I'm going to tell you, man, stay, stay safe in New York. <laughs> All right. Bye. Yeah.